The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At his confirmation hearing, Judge Merrick Garland, President Joe Biden's nominee for Attorney General, said domestic terrorism is a greater threat than it has been for decades and vowed to prioritize combating extremist violence. We must do everything in the power of the Justice Department to prevent this kind of interference with the policies of American democratic institutions. And I plan, if you confirm me for attorney general, to do everything in my power to ensure that we are protected. Garland, who's now a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, appears headed for a bipartisan vote of approval in the Senate, almost five years after Senate Republicans blocked consideration of his nomination to the Supreme Court by President Barack Obama. Joining me is Matthew Schneider, former U.S. attorney in Michigan and a partner at Honigman. So just give me your general impression of Merrick Garland's testimony today. So it seems like the questions are falling into three categories. There's current cases, the Justice Department's independence and policy. Well, Mr. Garland can't talk about current cases, and he's assured the senators that the department will be independent. So really, the focus of the hearing is about policy. And in general, and but more specifically, the focus of the hearing is about what policies will the new attorney general make that will be different from the previous administration? And this is in a variety of areas, climate change, voting rights, racism, marijuana, all very, very broad topics. He said that his first priority, his first briefing, will be to deal with the attack on the Capitol and that the attack was not a one-off with regard to domestic terrorism. How much can an attorney general's commitment make a difference In that regard? Well, in this case, a lot, because there are multiple cases arising out of that incident at the Capitol. Those are all being prosecuted by the Justice Department because the U.S. Justice Department in Washington, D.C., handles both state and federal cases. So, whether those cases are charged in any capacity, that's going to be a Justice Department initiative. And if you think about who Merrick Garland is, this is really quite revealing that. He began his testimony by talking about the importance of combating domestic terrorism and making that one of his highest priorities. Well, look at him himself. He's already done that. He prosecuted the Oklahoma City bombing case. So this is a good example of why there's really no room for on-the-job training as a new attorney general. And Merrick Garland is proving that in his confirmation hearing. Over and over again, he said that he will make independent decisions about investigations and prosecutions and that he wouldn't have taken the job if politics were a part of it. But still, he was asked that question in different forms over and over. Was he not convincing the first five or six times he said it? I think he was convincing, but each senator wants to ask 
his or her own questions. And that is a very important question and line of questioning for the senators. And I think they want absolute assurance that that is the case. And he's coming across very convincingly. Now, there was a great deal of questioning from Republicans about whether he would continue specific investigations and politically sensitive cases, the Durham investigation, the Hunter Biden investigation among them. Did his answer satisfy you? Yes, because as U.S. attorney, I didn't discuss ongoing cases with the media either. And neither can a nominee for attorney general. It is the same. You do not discuss those ongoing cases. And look, he isn't in the Justice Department yet. He doesn't even know. He also stated many times, I haven't been briefed on this case. He is not up to speed on them. He really knows about as much in those cases as a normal, ordinary American might glean from reading the newspaper. There was a great deal of questioning from Democrats about the Justice Department that Garland will inherit one that was criticized for being politicized under Trump and whose staff, according to reporting, has gone through some tumultuous times. What did you get from him about how he'll handle the administration of the Justice Department? I took from that that he will be an even hand and he will be fair and he will manage the department very, very well. What didn't really come out in this hearing is when they're talking about the morale of the Justice Department, What didn't come out is, what is the Justice Department? The Justice Department is in the U.S. Attorney's offices. The Justice Department is in 93 districts across the country in every single state. Those are where the Justice Department employees are. And the morale in those offices is quite high. And that just didn't come across. You mentioned that they were asking him about policy. How much of the policy is the attorney general's to make? How much is he following what the administration tells him? And does it depend on the attorney general? It does depend on the attorney general. That policy comes from the attorney general. Whether or not to prosecute marijuana cases, whether or not to have the China initiative continue that was started under Attorney General Jeff Sessions, whether or not to create an office in the Justice Department to focus on climate change. Those are decisions that are made in the org chart at the Justice Department. So certainly he can make a lot of those decisions himself. In his remarks, he talked about prioritizing policing and civil rights to combat racial discrimination. Any indication how he intends to carry that out? Another item that came up in this confirmation hearing was the use of consent decrees. Consent decrees to settle cases against police departments and municipalities. Those were used. In the Obama administration, those consent decrees were ended in the Trump administration. So the question now is, will Merrick Garland bring back the use of consent decrees against police departments for police actions or wrongs? And he indicated that he would. That is a tool that is in his toolbox. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see the Justice Department using consent decrees, much like it did in the Obama administration. That aspect will come back. And what about prioritizing civil rights? He plans to expand the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and to use consent decrees in a more forceful manner than has been done in the immediate past. And look, everything in the Justice Department, when you move one lever, something else reacts. So if you're going to increase the enforcement in civil rights, 
You're going to have to look to other parts of the department to find out where am I going to cut back? Because the Justice Department only has so many employees. And I know that Merrick Garland is committed to enforcing the work of the Civil Rights Division. The question then becomes, where are those bodies going to come from if you have to expand the division? There was no reference to whether or not he's going to consider criminal charges against former President Trump. Are you surprised that no one has asked him that question? I am. I'm surprised that the question hasn't been asked. I'm not going to be surprised at all of the answer because he's not going to answer that question. (laughs) It's a question that contemplates a future possible criminal prosecution. And as he's indicated repeatedly, he hasn't been briefed. He hasn't even met with John Durham. He needs to get into the department, find out what's going on, and then make those decisions after that. Sort of on a personal level with him, do you think a lot of attorneys would give up a federal judgeship, a lifetime appointment to become the attorney general, which is such an incredibly hard job? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> but why? Look, Louis Free gave up his job as a federal judge to become the head of the FBI. And I believe he did that because he felt that that was his drive and his purpose in life to advance the ball. And I think Merrick Garland feels the same way. He is looking at a new step in his life. He believes that this is the right thing for him to do. And I think he'll do a fine job at it, as a matter of fact. And so for him, it's not always about your job security. It's about doing what you think is right. Well put. Okay, so now... The differences between the Trump administration and the Biden administration are enormous, we envision. What does that mean for the priorities of the Justice Department? You're going to see a lot change in the priorities. And we're talking about the policy here, the use of consent decrees in the Civil Rights Division, the uh, ability to charge people and give discretion to the line assistant U.S. attorneys. Attorney General Ashcroft had his approach, which was less discretion. Eric Holder gave more discretion to the assistant U.S. attorneys. Jeff Sessions was kind of in the middle, but I think you're going to see that Merrick Garland wants to give more discretion to line assistant U.S. attorneys. You'll see different uh, views on how to prosecute corporations. I mean, if you think about it that way, uh, when you were in the Justice Department under President Trump, corporations didn't always have to provide cooperation in an investigation. But in the previous administration under Obama, corporations were expected to cooperate. And I think you're going to see a return to that. And I think you'll also see a return to more significant fines for corporations and polluters who run afoul of federal law. That's going to be very significant. I know personally from my discussions with Deputy Attorney General Rosen that these things about fining a corporation or how to treat a corporation I know that he thought very um, contemplatively about that. He thought very long and hard about those types of decisions because of the impact that that could have on shareholders and the corporation itself. We have to see what the new approach will be under Merrick Garland. If you were advising a corporation or if you, if you were running a corporation, what would you do? What's your best advice? I would say look at your corporate compliance programs right now because the president of the United States, Mr. Biden, has said that he will, quote, hold corporate executives personally accountable, including jail time, unquote. 
And if I were a corporate executive, I would want to make sure that nobody in my company, nobody was committing any federal crimes, engaging in wrongdoing, was uh, polluting, was uh, violating any type of regulation, because the scrutiny is about to come. Does Garland have a say in who the U.S. attorneys are for each district? I mean, how does that work? Not really. I mean, the the president will get to select the U.S. attorneys, and that really goes through, oftentimes there will be local committees, and uh, the, the local U.S. senators will have a lot of impact on that. And then once the U.S. senators decide that they feel comfortable with who the U.S. attorney nominee will be, that candidate will go to the uh, Justice Department and will have an interview with either the attorney general or the deputy attorney general prior to the appointment. But it's usually not that the attorney general reaches out into the state and finds out who they want the U.S. attorney to be. It's usually the reverse. The states reach out to Washington, D.C. And I know you had a special take on the issue of domestic terrorism. Let's look at where we are kind of in a historical context. Anytime that there is a significant act in American history, often federal law changes. If you look at the rise of the mafia, the Congress decided that they would pass RICO. If you looked at the Oklahoma City bombing, Congress decided to pass enhancements to the anti-terrorism statutes. After September 11, Congress passed the Patriot Act. So now the question is, after the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, what will the Congress respond to? Will they pass additional legislation that really gives us a more firm and usable domestic terrorism law? That is a question that is on the table really for Congress. I know it came up in the context of the hearing, but that's not really a question for the incoming attorney general. That's a policy choice that the Congress can make. And that is certainly to be covered in the next coming weeks and months. Thanks, Matthew. That's Matthew Schneiderman, former U.S. attorney in Michigan and a partner at Honigman. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Voting machine company Dominion is suing MyPillow's chief executive officer, Mike Lindell, in a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit 
for echoing Donald Trump's false claim that the voting machine company rigged the election. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter. So tell us about the lawsuit, Eric. So Dominion sued Mike Lindell for defamation because for months he's been repeating this false claim that Dominion was part of a vast conspiracy to uh, flip millions of votes away from Trump to ensure Joe Biden's victory. It's part of this vast plot involving foreign agents, you know, communist money, and even uh, the late Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez. So uh, he is one of several people who's, who's been uh, one of the loudest uh, amplifiers of these claims. And so the lawsuit was uh, seen as somewhat inevitable, and, and it was filed here just yesterday. And Dominion claims that Lindell increased his sales by as much as 40 percent and would issue promotional codes for his product like Fight for Trump, 45 and QAnon? That's right. The The evidence laid out in this, this complaint, which is more than 100 pages, includes a lot of detailed uh, you know, evidence from uh, Mr. Lindell's public appearances, uh, whether on sort of like a very conservative or right wing uh, media outlets uh, to appearances in person at events uh, where he would be, you know, ranting against this uh, unfounded election fraud conspiracy. But then at the same time, also uh, offering up promotional codes to get discounts on pillows and things like that. And of course, Trump, you know, was a supporter of, of his company as well. He suggested people go ahead and buy his pillow. So he, that, he got an early boost from Trump, you know, several years ago. And I was sort of re- was returning the favor here by going uh, on the road to suggest that Trump, uh, the election had been stolen from him. Dominion had warned Lindell, but Lindell didn't back down. No, not at all. The complaints uh, outlined that uh, several warning letters were sent to Mr. Lindell, suggesting that uh, he stopped saying the things that he is saying. Uh, each time he w- would go ahead and uh, get back uh, on the air and, and repeat the claims. Um, and indeed, after the suit was filed yesterday, I had a phone call, a phone conversation with uh, Mr. Lindell, and he doubled down again. He flat out uh, repeated his claim that Dominion voting machines are specifically designed for fraud to steal elections, um, you know, said that uh, Again, that it was part of a plot involving China and other foreign agents uh, and insisting that he has mountains of evidence uh, that he's going to be able to present uh, in this case. And even saying that he welcomes the the lawsuit being filed because now he'll have an opportunity to present all this evidence in court. And he's extremely confident that he's going to win. He told you. These machines were built to steal elections. I'm not a stupid guy. If I didn't have 100% evidence, I wouldn't be doing this. That's correct. And you get a sense of, uh, of his approach to this uh, litigation here. Um, he said as well that he has you know, put all of this evidence up on a website. He even says he made um, a documentary of his own that he's put online. Um, and and the, the characterization of the evidence that he's talking about, you know, I haven't looked through it all. Uh, but it sounds similar to some of the evidence that was put forward and or described in all these about 60 lawsuits after the election uh, by Trump or his campaign or his allies that all failed, um, including several by Sidney Powell um, that uh, have the same allegations about this alleged you know, conspiracy. Um, but those were a lot of affidavits that they weren't signed. A lot of it was redacted and a lot of it has been like very explicitly debunked, um, including especially these affidavits around that Venezuelan link. But that doesn't seem to dissuade Mr. Lindell. Um, 
he, again, he says he's confident that he's going to win this case. Interesting that Dominion included in its complaint false claims he'd made about his products. That's right. You got a sense in the complaint that Dominion wanted to um, sort of spell out a history of, uh, of you know, false claims being made by Lindell and, and MyPillow. And he did point out in this complaint that uh, several you know, counties in California had accused MyPillow and accused Lindell of making false claims about his MyPillow product, saying that it you know, cured all kinds of ailments um, like fibromyalgia and restless leg syndrome and insomnia. And there's, you know, they said, that's not true. You just can't, you just can't make those claims about your pillows. Um, and he did reach an agreement with the, the prosecutors to um, pay a, a, just about a million dollars in fines and a hundred thousand uh, dollars in donations on top of that. So um, he also uh, made some claims about a product that supposedly was a cure or a treatment for COVID-19 um, that he insisted had passed phase one and phase two trials and that the FDA would soon be approving it. Um, the complaint notes that none of those trials took place. And of course, the FDA did not end up approving this. In fact, the FDA put out a statement specifically uh, warning people away from this product. So you can see that there's a, a bit of a history um, of Mr. Lindell making claims that turned out to not be true. Uh, so they're trying to tie that to the, his claims about Dominion. Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.